Due to the age of these recorded messages, there are parts of low quality that are hard to understand. We have done our best to eliminate these and make it as clear as possible. Now this evening, we shall read a very short chapter in Isaiah. The prophecies of Isaiah and chapter 4. And we will read from verse 2. Isaiah chapter 4 from verse 2. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy even every one that is written among the living, or as the New English Bible puts it, in the book of life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof, by the spirit of justice and by the spirit of birth, and the Lord will create over the whole habitation of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory shall be spread a covering. And there shall be a pavilion for a shade in the daytime from the heat and for a refuge, and for a covert from the storm and from rain. Now shall we just ask the Lord just once more about this time. Oh, beloved Lord, we thank thee for those wonderful words we've sung, my name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Oh, how we thank thee, our beloved Father, for putting us in the Lord Jesus Christ, for the security, the eternal security which is ours in him. And Father, we pray this evening that by thy Spirit thou make us life-giving yes. this time. A time of illumination, a time of divine revelation. A time when things that perhaps we know in the head become somehow known in the heart. When, Lord, things dawn on us in all their wonder and power and glory. Oh, Father, we pray that thou wilt not allow these studies on this matter of covering to just somehow pass us by, to become just one more study which we have gone through. But rather, Lord, we pray that we may be a people who know in our experience what it is to abide in the Lord. 
Hear us then, Lord, we commit ourselves to thee, the weakness of these lips and the weakness of this mind and body. Thou art able, Lord, to display thy superior power and grace. And thou canst, Lord, through the anointing upon our Lord Jesus Christ, cause that this speaking and ministry be anointed and that our hearing also be anointed. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, now it is a good four weeks since we um, uh, last looked at this subject of covering. I don't think I need to say to you all that it is a matter of vital importance, and perhaps there is no other subject that is more uh, necessary, more uh, important, to both young and old believers. And when we're young in the Lord, if we can only learn what covering means and how to stay covered, uh, it will be a lesson that will stand us in good stead for the whole of our Christian life. And if we're old in the Lord, all oh, the need for us to understand that spiritual age is no guarantee that we stay covered and that the Word of God teaches uh, by lesson and incident, uh, in many, many cases, of those who, having known God in the most wonderful way, have yet got uncovered in their last days. Therefore, I say this is a tremendous subject. And we know that the enemy's objective is to get us uncovered. Because only when we're uncovered can he strike us. If only that would sink into every single believer, every one of us in this place tonight, if only it would just sink in the simplicity of it. The fact of the matter is that we are absolutely safe in the Lord Jesus. Nothing, nothing in the whole of hell can touch us when we're in Christ. Now, there are things, of course, which God allowed that are inexplicable problems that come to us. There are the normal sufferings that come to all mankind. There are many things that come our way. But uh, when it's through the hand of God, we are absolutely safe. And every single problem or trial is turned into a kind of agent by God to work glory into our lives, to change us from glory to glory, from one capacity of glory to another capacity of glory, from a smaller capacity to a larger capacity. Therefore, if only every one of us could see that to stay where God has placed us in the Lord Jesus Christ, is the safest place on earth in the whole universe in the heaven of heaven there is no safer place than to be in Christ and those who've gone into the presence of our beloved Lord are in fact no more secure than you and I that may take some swallowing We've sung it, as we all do so happily, more happy, but not more secure. 
the glorified spirit in heaven. If perhaps from our point of view they are a little more secure, it's because the enemy can't reach them there. But oh, if only every believer could understand this simple fact that Satan cannot reach us in Christ on earth. If we would only stay there. What does it mean, covering? Well, of course, there's this little phrase used in the New Testament over 200 times. In Christ. And that sums up this whole matter. To be covered is to be concealed in Christ. It is to be robed with the garments of his salvation. It is to be completely, as it were, hidden in him. The Lord Jesus said to us, Abide in me and I in you. That's what it means to be covered. A life hid with Christ in God. We are with Christ in God. How can the devil get us if that's our position? First, he's got to come to the Father. Then, he's got to come to the Son. And only then can he get at us. A life hid with Christ in God. Now I hope this little brief survey of all that we've done over four weeks or more, uh, I hope that it may dawn upon you again this evening that it is in fact the most secure and safe place in the whole world to be in Christ. Now, now, in your office, in your home, with those difficult people, here in this company made up of such difficulties, wherever we are, we are absolutely safe in Christ. And if we could only see that if we have believed if by faith we have been saved, if we have, through faith, come into the Lord Jesus Christ, we are absolutely secure. Nothing can touch us there except by the sovereign permission and will of God. But you see, the whole point is simply this, that if the devil is going to destroy us, paralyze us, corrupt us, sidetrack us, the first thing he's got to do is to get us to uncover ourselves. Now the devil can't uncover us. The only people who can uh, do this is you and me. So the whole strategy of Satan, the whole plan of Satan, the whole objective of the enemy is to get us unwittingly to uncover ourselves. Then when that has happened, he can strike. Now, of course, the tragedies we see in the Christian life, in Christian work, the um, terrible things that sometimes we hear of are all due or very very largely due if not all of them due to this uncovering the bible warns us seriously about this matter 
It tells us that some are sick. In other words, it is not far-fetched to understand that sickness, physical sickness, <coughs> mental sickness can come to us as a result of uncovering. Now, this is not to say that all sickness and all illness is due to uncovering. But there can be cases of sickness and illness which are a direct result and consequence of getting uncovered. There is weakness. Here is a person who has run well in the law. Here is a person who's been in the forefront of the battle. Here is a person who's been of an open spirit, holy with what God is doing, cooperating to the full, and then slowly they become sluggish. They begin to opt out. Something else takes them over. What has happened? There's been an uncovering. And the scripture says, some of you are weak. Where before there was, spirit, there was spiritual muscle and spiritual sinew, now there is only weakness, spiritual lethargy, indolence. We forget that this is a... In, in, not in every case, but in so many cases, a direct consequence and result of uncovering. We are warned, furthermore, and perhaps the most solemnly of all, that we can lose our physical life. That there can be, in fact, case of death, physical death. Some of you have died, says the Apostle Paul, because of this. Now, that makes us wake up, or should do, to the fact that the only way the enemy can trip most of us is by getting us to uncover ourselves. And his methods of so doing are multitudinous. In one of our studies, we dwelt, I think, over two evenings on the many ways that uh, um, we uncover ourselves, pride, an unforgiving spirit, uh, absence of love, backbiting, an untamed tongue, not walking in the light. Oh, so many ways. And you know that the enemy is so ingenious. He, he, seems to, he seems to cut the cloth to the person. He watches us. He has a vast intelligent service. It's not stupid, again, or imaginative uh, to say that. He has a, a, a spiritual intelligence that has watched us from childhood, that knows our weaknesses, knows our foibles, knows the temperament, knows the background, knows the things that get us down. And slowly but surely we are engineered into such a position that it's difficult for us to walk in the light. Have you not had an experience like that where there's something which you know very well should be dealt with, should be put right? You should come out into the light and get it done, but you just can't do it. Somehow you're being engineered into such a position that it is impossible to say anything or do anything. That's uncovering. And we have to face the terrible possibility then, do I either pay the price and get out into the light, or do I remain uncovered with the possibility of spiritual destruction? 
and at the least, spiritual paralysis. Now, I've used just the question of walking in the light. There are all kinds of things that we get engineered into. I have seen people desperately sick who know very well that there is some connection with conduct. And when they have been asked, have said quite firmly that they have nothing to confess. I remember one person who actually died shortly after saying that. It is quite incredible how the enemy can, can engineer us into a position where we cannot be honest, where we cannot, as it were, confess, where somehow or other we feel powerless. Well, we've spent time upon those many ways um, in which we can get uncovered. We've also talked about this simple fact that what we need to do is uh, what we need to do when we know we've got uncovered. Of course, the first thing of all is to seek to remain always covered, to abide in the Lord at all times, never to let there be any uncovering. But in all our experience, we have to be realists. In all our experience, I think the greatest saint, there comes points when we've uncovered ourselves. What are we to do when we have uncovered ourselves? Well, there are two tremendous things to remember. The first is that the Lord Jesus Christ has already paid the price. His finished work means that we can get back to covering even when we have terribly uncovered ourselves. And secondly, we have the intercession of the Lord Jesus, whoever liveth to make intercession for us. He pleads for us, just as he, he prayed for Peter when he knew Peter had uncovered himself and Satan had obtained him by request that he might sift him as wheat. The Lord Jesus prayed for him that his faith would not fail. So the Lord Jesus prays for you and for me on the basis of his own finished work that our faith shall not fail, but we shall come through. Sifted, but we shall come through. There were four things that I mentioned which I feel I ought tonight to just repeat. Four things about how to get covered when we've got uncovered. Let me just very simply remind you of them. The first is this, recognize that you are uncovered. Be blatantly uh, hard with yourself. Recognize that you've gone. Don't excuse yourself. Don't sort of say, well, there was this and there was that and the other and I was pushed into this and so on and so forth. Just simply say, I can see I've got myself uncovered. Confess it. Recognize it. It is essential to recognize that one is uncovered when one has got uncovered. Nothing to be gained by hiding it. Secondly, by faith we take your divinely given position in Christ. Don't, don't wait for a moment. Don't wait till next week. Don't wait till tomorrow. By faith, retake your divinely given position in the Lord Jesus Christ. There you are absolutely safe. Do not stay for a moment longer uncovered 
than your knowledge of it. Thirdly, put right whatever is wrong, no matter what the cost. If there is something wrong which has caused the uncovering, put it right. There is no back door to covering. If you've done something, if you've said something, you've got to withdraw what you've said. You've got to undo, as it were, what you've done. Put right whatever it is. And lastly, learn the lesson. Learn the lesson. There's always a cause. Learn it. Now, folks will often say, well, you know, my temperament is such. Learn the lesson. We're all as different as blades of grass. Everyone is different, but we cannot make an excuse of our background or our circumstances or even our temperament. We must get to know it and get to know what the devices of Satan are in our own lives so that we learn the lesson. This is the way the enemy did it. I've learned that lesson. A fool is not someone who falls. A fool is someone who falls the same place again and again. That person is a stupid fool. If a person keeps on falling into a ditch at a certain place, he must be potty. I mean, he truly is a fool. But if he's fallen into a ditch in the dark for the first time in his life, now, didn't know the ditch was there, we all fully understand that it could happen to any of us. But to fall in again and again and again and again? That person must be really dumb. Unfortunately, many of us are just like that. The reason we fall again and again in the exact same place is because we've never learned the lesson. We're rather like those people who, when they have any spot or pimple, plaster something on it any sort of rash or anything like that, bang something on it and destroy the rash. Of course, it comes up again because they will not go or let someone else go, a doctor or someone, to the root of the, of, of, of the problem. There's something there which is causing it. But many of us are just like that. We see something there, so we slap something on it, and we're very happy that it's gone the next day. Look, it's gone, we say, only to come up somewhere else. And that's how some Christians live their Christian life. Well, this whole matter of covering is so marvelous in many ways, so wonderful, and yet so solemn and so serious. In many, I suppose, there's a sense in which we can say that it puts a certain amount of fear into us. I don't think it ought to, in a wrong way. I think it is excellent if the fear of the Lord comes upon us in this matter. But, you know, for me, covering is not a negative thing. It's not that there's all the possibility of being sidetracked, of being destroyed, of being corrupted by the enemy, of being somehow um, uh, paralyzed. Uh, for me, covering is wonderful in that we are so secure. 
and so safe. So why look on the dark side? If you know that you are absolutely safe in Christ, why not dwell upon the positive business of staying where you're safe? And when you have got drawn out, learning why you got drawn out. It says in James that every man uh, sins only when he is enticed by his own sin or lust. And finally is drawn out. You will remember that the last evening that we had on this matter of covering, we took a whole number of Old Testament pictures um, and stories and saw both the positive and the negative side of this whole matter. We saw how this subject or matter of covering was illustrated, illuminated in all kinds of lives from Adam and Eve right the way through down to Hezekiah. Of course, there were many others. We were only able to take some of the really big stories. How full of divine uh, instruction those stories are. And I hope that any who were not there for that evening that you will listen uh, to the tape of that time because I have said all along that it is those stories in the Old Testament which are, in fact, the most illuminating and the most instructive um, concerning this matter. So if you haven't heard that, please do go and uh, see if you can get the tape. Now, this evening, we come to perhaps, uh, for me, the most difficult aspect of all, for me, because um, how to explain a mystery um, when it remains a mystery now, someone prayed something about uh, the mystery being revealed to us, and that's just marvelous when a mystery has, in fact, been revealed. But there are some things which still remain mysteries. And um, I can only uh, lead you so far um, this evening. I can only take you a little way and leave you on the brink of an abyss, uh, in a sense, you, you can sort of look, as it were, from uh, observation point on the Grand Canyon over a tremendous panorama, uh, stretching away into the distance, range after range in the far distance. That's all I can do uh, this evening. But as perhaps some of us have not even been to the observation point, um, and seen really anything of it, it may be just as well that we do the little that we can do. At a first reading, and a superficial reading, of the Bible concerning this matter of covering, it would seem that it is all to do with sin and failing. In other words, we think of Adam and Eve, they sinned. And they were immediately conscious that they were naked. And God, in the end, um, shed blood and clothed them, covered them with skin. And I think most of us uh, have a deep, deep-seated conception uh, of this matter as being something to do essentially with sin. In other words, if there had been no sin, there would be no need of covering. 
that we are sinners and we need the garment of salvation. We need to be robed with the robe of his righteousness. We have no hope of coming before God except in Christ. And I think that that is what most of us feel to be uh, the teaching or the, uh, the whole extent of the teaching uh, concerning this matter of covering. It is really virtually a question of knowing how to confess sin, how to take Christ as our salvation and our righteousness, our acceptance before God. Nevertheless, as we go deeper into this whole matter in the Word of God, we discover that it has far, far greater meaning and significance. In fact, we begin to discover that this matter of covering uh, is not just to do with sin and human failing. It appears that before sin ever entered the world, there was evidently some kind of need for covering. Now let's take the Word of God and let's just look at one or two scriptures. There are only one or two in this matter. First of all, in um, Ezekiel chapter 28, Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 14 and verse 16. Now many of you will know that this is the extraordinary prophecy concerning um, Satan and how he fell. Verse 14. Thou wast the anointed cherub that covereth. And I set thee so that thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in all thy ways from the day that thou wast created till unrighteousness was found in thee. By the abundance of thy traffic, they filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore have I cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I have destroyed thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Now you notice that the devil has been called here, Satan's been called here, the cherub that covereth. And then again in verse 16, the covering cherub. Oh, covering cherub. Now the Hebrew word here um, is one of the three used and translated in English by the word cover. And it is the word, in this instance, to hedge in or to enclose. So we have some thought of this person hedging in something, enclosing something. In other words, protecting something, guarding something. He was the guardian. He was the protector, if you like. Now, this was before sin ever entered into the world. This was before there was the whole story of the fall. Before unrighteousness was found even in Lucifer. What does this mean? So problematical is this verse that the Revised Standard Version translates it, amends it to this. With an anointed cherub 
I placed you. And then they put uh, a note and say Hebrew quite obscure. With an anointed guardian cherub, I placed you. Verse 16. I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and the guardian cherub drove you out. That's how they have amended it. In other words, we have here something extraordinary. Someone is called, if we take the Hebrew literally, the anointed cherub that covereth. And that doesn't seem to make too much sense. Oh, covering cherub. Now, what is it that Satan, Lucifer, what was it that God gave him to do? What was his job? We now look back into the mists of, well, not just time, but before time was. Right, right back and we get some glimpse of someone whose job was covering something to do with the glory of God, something to do with the presence of God. And this one was anointed by God to guard or to protect or to cover, to hedge in, to enclose. That's the first thing. The New English Bible, of course, follows the Revised Standard Version by also amending it in exactly the same way and suggesting that an anointed cherub was with this person, and so on. This is because it just, to the human mind, doesn't seem to make sense. So, um, it has been amended in a way that would seem or appear to make sense. But that is never the way with the Word of God to amend it so that it falls in with our understanding or sense. Now I pass on to another um, verse, one that we read together in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 4. Verse 5. And the Lord will create over the whole habitation of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory shall be spread a covering. Now will you note that, that over all the glory shall be spread a covering. Is that not a most extraordinary and mysterious phrase? What does it mean? Had you ever heard that the glory of God needs a covering? Now again, this Hebrew word here means very uh, simply covering or canopy, that's all. A canopy or a covering, or as you who've got the authorized version will see, defense. It, uh, the word, the Hebrew word does not mean defense, but it has the thought of overlaying something, thus protecting. So the old authorized version translators, King James translators, translated the word by for a defense. Not incorrectly. For a defense. This, this covering of the glory is for a defense. 
overlaying it. Now, I suggest to you that we're face to face with mystery. Why is there a need when there is no more sin and no more Savior in eternity to come, the ages to come, when all that is evil has finally been finished, done away with, burnt up in the lake of fire? Why is there a need for there to be a covering over the glory? Why an overlaying? Why a canopy? The Revised Standard Version uses the word canopy. The Septuagint, that's the earliest Greek version that we have, um, uses uh, this, uh, uh, puts it um, this way. It says, yea, there shall be, uh, as it were, the smoke and light of fire burning by night, and upon all the glory shall be a defense. Upon all the glory shall be a defense. Now, once again, the New English Bible has found it far too much. Um, it just hasn't made sense to our modern translators, and therefore, this is how they have rendered it. For glory shall be spread over all as a covering and a canopy. For glory shall be spread over all. Now, of course, we must all say this, that that immediately makes much more sense. We have to say that that falls completely into line with all that we know. Uh, there is a note which tells us that the Hebrew is obscure. But the Hebrew is not obscure. Our understanding of the Hebrew is obscure. Uh, the Hebrew is here, and it's perfectly clear, if I can explain to those who know nothing about this, by just saying this. You see in verse 5, it says, And the Lord will create over the whole habitation of Mount Zion, and over her assemblies, a cloud and smoke by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night. That little uh, preposition, over, is precisely the same word used in modern Hebrew. For on, if I put something on a table, if I put something over something, it's exactly the same. On the glory, there shall be a cover. It is, there's no mystery about it. The mystery is what it means. <laughs> now, again and again, now more modern translators feel that if there is anything which somehow or other doesn't add up, it, it means that the original is obscure. In other words, they feel that some dreadful mistake has been made by some sleepy uh, copyist who, when he was sort of copying, sort of was falling asleep, and as so easy with a Hebrew letter or two, he changed the thing, and so they feel, well, there must be something obscure here, therefore we ought to amend it. But it is, in fact, quite simple. Over the glory a covering. Over the glory, a covering. What does that mean? What does that mean? I suppose really it's very wicked to um, sort of bring you thus far, um, provoke a whole number of questions, and leave you in midair. But you see, 
I have to say this, that I don't know what it means. Except that we are touching something which is not just to do with sin and human failing, but something that was evidently an essential need when there was no sin and no failing, and when one day there is no more sin and no more human failing, will still be a need. Now let me um, uh, just, in passing, point you to another scripture which may or may not help us. For those who are more wise amongst us, maybe they will get some light on it, I don't know. But it's in Zechariah chapter 2, and it's verse 5, and it's an interesting parallel. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and I will be the glory in the midst of her. Does that throw any light on this matter? I leave it to you to think about. A wall of fire round about, there's a defense, and glory in the midst. The glory is defended. The glory in the midst is defended by a wall of fire. It's the same idea. I don't know. I'll say a few more things uh, to confuse you um, on this matter. Um, you will remember that in the tabernacle where the glory of the Lord filled the whole place, there was a veil. And on that veil which spoke, of the absolute holiness of God. On that veil were embroidered cherubim. Anointed cherub that cover. He fell. But over that veil cherubim. Do you remember in that Genesis 3? It was a cherubim that stood. Uh, a cherub that stood guarding the way to the tree of life. A sword of flame. You see it on the, in the tabernacle and in the temple. Maybe that doesn't mean anything to you. But you remember when you go into the holiest place of all, the thing that you see are two huge cherubim on the mercy seat. So great were these cherubim in the temple that their wings their wingspan together was from end to end, from wall to wall. Now what does it all mean? It seems to have again something to do with covering. Something's covered. It says their wings cover. Their wings covered the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. Now the Ark of the Covenant, all of you know this, was the symbol, the outward symbol of the presence of God. And those great wings were covering something. The glory of the Lord appeared there. It was there that God communed with the high priest. Well, there again, there's something I can't fully understand. Um, but I have entitled this evening's study The Mystery of Covenant. If it does no more than brings us face to face with something far beyond our finite little minds, it'll have done good. Far, far too much trouble has uh, uh, 
attended those who come to Bible studies and get it all beautifully into their head. There is no mystery. Like tape recorders, we can press the button and out it all comes. It's a good thing to find something that's beyond us all, speaker and hearer alike. Now I would like just to read a few more uh, verses in connection with this, um, which may or may not have some bearing on it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. Now we have so far seen something about an anointed cherub uh, that um, um, covereth. Oh, just wait. I'm awfully sorry. Just wait. Before we go to that Hebrews uh, verse, um, uh, one thing I've just remembered, I haven't said anything about the cherubim. Um, uh, you better just look to Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 23. Now, I know some people die as soon as we uh, anyone starts to talk about cherubim, especially in Ezekiel, because it's so involved. But if you look at chapter 1, and verse 23, it says, And under the firmament were their wings straight, the one toward the other. Every one had two which covered on this side, and every one had two which covered on that side their bodies. So these wings, when not in use, were covering them completely, these strange creatures. Verse uh, 11 of the same chapter and their faces and their wings were separate above. Two wings of every one were joined, one to another, and two covered their bodies. Now, this is quite extraordinary again, these cherubim and their wings. Whoever sees the cherubim is always struck by their wings. A little farther on in Ezekiel, a, mo a most extraordinary thing happens in this vision. As the prophet Ezekiel looks at the cherubim, a man's hand appears under the wing. And in one case, the hand comes out, as it were, and takes coals from off the altar. I mean, it struck them all. Now, when we come to the last chapters of uh, uh, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and chapter 4, we find these strange creatures are there again. The four living creatures full of eyes. And we hear again that they had these wings. We're told there they had three pairs of wings, six wings, each of them. In perpetual motion, crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, in um, Isaiah and chapter 6, uh, in the year that King Isaiah died, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, he saw seraphim. Now, some people have tried to tell us that seraphim are angels, but I think I side with rabbinical scholarship in this matter, uh, who without, I think, exception, all say that the seraphim are like the cherubim. They are, in fact, symbolic. And uh, these seraphim here, you see, have six wings. With two, they cover the face, which is the most extraordinary thing. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they fly. Now, have you ever seen any flying creature flying with wings over its eyes? But these creatures fly with two wings over their eyes, two wings over their feet, 
and with two, they, they, they fly. What an extraordinary picture. Whatever does it mean? That whenever we see the presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, we see these cherubim. As if it's, they speak of the whole creation of God in its entirety. Visible and invisible. Everything as the expression of the glory and grace and power of God. Well, I don't know if it would be a whole evening study just to take a cherubim, but there is something there. Uh, we've got. We know, of course, as I've already said, that in the tabernacle we saw them uh, uh, within the holiest place and on the veil, both in tabernacle and temple. Now let's go back to these other scriptures. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 29. And we read this short sentence, for our God is a consuming fire. There are those who would like to relegate that to the Old Testament. They seem to think that God was only a consuming fire in the Old Testament, that he's changed his character since then and has now become a sort of gentle old man. But the writer of the Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. That is his character. That is his nature. He is a consuming fire. He has just been speaking about receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He is speaking about giving service, uh, well-pleasing to God with reverence and awe. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 24. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 24. For the Lord thy God is a devouring fire, a jealous God. Again, Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah chapter 33. And verse 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling hath seized the godless one. Who among us can dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burning? Now, would you turn back to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, verses 21 to 23. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon the rock. And it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover thee with my hand until I have passed by. And I will take away my hand, and thou shalt see my back but my face thou sh 
but my face shall not be seen. Now, I have just read those few scriptures because they may or may not throw light upon this whole matter. The majesty of God, the greatness of God, the infinite greatness of God, the infinite power and holiness of God, what the old Puritans used to call the unutterable holiness of God, are today not appreciated. You have to go a long, long way in Christian circles to hear someone preach on the majesty of God. How often, even in Christian circles, are we left with a feeling God is very cozy, very small, very little. Somehow, we have managed to make God smaller, at least in our conception. We have reduced it. We have made him more mundane, more ordinary, uh, without, I hope, being blasphemous, more cozy, more easily analyzed. We can inspect God. We can put him almost under a kind of spiritual microscope and examine him. We can almost take him apart and put him together again. Sometimes think they do in some theological seminaries. The way they categorize his attributes. And pigeonhole everything about him. So that at the end, instead of being left to sense the infinity and greatness, how awe-inspiring God is, we're left with someone that we've managed to analyze and have got at our fingertips. But God is God. Eternally and unchangeably the same. There was no more nonsensical teaching than that teaching which told us that the God who appeared at Sinai to our fathers is today a changed character. That somehow or other then he was all fire and now he's all mercy that he should have revealed himself as fire then, and revealed himself in this age as love. That's different. But to imagine that he's changed his character as if God can evolve in a kind of spiritual Darwinian theory of divine evolution, he sort of evolved from some tribal patriarchal deity that was savage and cruel and full of law to a God who is benign and loving and sweet. Of course, it's nonsensical 
No wonder the world, many young people have turned away from an idea of God like that. Some old gentleman up in the sky. God is no old gentleman up in the sky. The same God that caused Mount Sinai to smoke like a furnace is the God you and I have come to know through Jesus Christ. He is no different. He is this very night consuming fire, infinite in power, infinite in majesty, unutterably holy. That is the God with whom you and I have to do the living God, eternal in the same. Now the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Not if there are billions and billions of universes will you exhaust him. If there were billions multiplied by billions of universes, still beyond the end, God would be infinite. There is no end to his majesty, no end to his power, no end to his great plans. And if that is so, certainly it must be true that no finite created being such as you and such as me can ever fully comprehend him. Do you really think you can analyze God? No. Now, does that not, as it were, make us think? The 20th century has made no difference to him it has not limited him. The fact that we explore space, the fact that we've whizzed round one of the smaller of his planets, that we are sort of trying to do this and that, that hasn't made it any more difficult for God. With one word, he could finish the whole thing. With one word, he is absolutely the same. It's not made him harder. It's not made him uh, made it harder for him or easier for him. He is the same. Now, don't you begin to see how wonderful it is that God became man? That God, so infinite in his majesty and in his power, should have become a man born of a simple human being. And that he should have come to us in such a way that he is located, that he is understood, that he has a color to his hair, a color to his eyes. He has skin, flesh and blood, a body like you and me. The wonder of the resurrection and ascension of Christ is that today he has a body. He is not some ethereal being at the right hand of God the Father, but he is a person with an actual body that one day, by the grace of God, if he so allow us, we shall be able to touch. 
is it? A human being. Still God, but also man. So that this person, infinite in majesty and infinite in wisdom and infinite in power, unutterably holy, can be understood by you and me. We can know an intimate relationship to him. We can know him as Abba, Father. But woe betide any of us who, having been introduced into such an intimate relationship with God, should start to become familiar. God is love. 